Parent Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I'm joined once again by my co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, Aya. Each week, we bring you our take on all things happening in the world from our perspective as two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. Episode 25, Lisette. We've hit a quarter century with our podcast, and today's show is special. We're interviewing Gael Esposito with Creosote Partners, Arizona's progressive lobbying, government relations, communications, and legislative advocacy firm. We are going to go in on all the crazy shit that's been going on in the world for trans people and their families. Oh my God, Steven, there's so much going on and we need to talk about it. Well, let's go. Welcome everyone once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Okay, Steven, give me the rundown. What's up? What's going on in your life? Like, I, w- I need all the tea. Lisa, I'm, I'm finna spill the tea. First okay. and foremost, the dads officially has a release date. November 17th, the dad comes out on Netflix. Wait, wait, wait. Say that again. I need, I need to hear the date. November 17th, the dads comes out on Netflix. And what do people have to do? People have to go into Netflix, put it in their queue, and they have to have watch parties and they have to tell everybody and everybody that they know that the dads is going to be screening and released on November 17th on Netflix. Get it, get it, get it, get it. Just in case somebody missed it. What, what's the date again? November 17th on Netflix. Yes. So it's not all. That's not all the set. That's not all. Okay. On December 7th, the dads, the film is receiving a proclamation from the mayor of West Hollywood. The whole cast is joining Lucina and, fingers crossed, Dwayne Wade for this proclamation in California. You know that Daniel and I are going to be in the crowd. I'm saying, like, you need to be up with us. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to be like, woo! I'm so excited. So Lucina has been telling us, like, she's trying to manage our expectations. She's like, you know, somebody from his production company is definitely going to be there. And Dwayne Wade may be there, but I'm manifesting. He's going to be there. He's going to meet the whole cast. He's going to be in West Hollywood with us for this proclamation. I said it. My lips to God's ears. I feel like we all need Dwayne Wade jerseys. <laughs> Manifest it, wear it every day. If we all showed up, it's <laughs> <laughs> we should make we should make jerseys that say the dads with Dwayne Wade's number. Oh my God. Now, oh. now you're on to something because I wear that. Oh. I would absolutely and wear like, it. Okay. We have to send him and Gabrielle and Zaya one. <gasps> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's on your to-do okay. list. Make right. it happen. All right. Okay. I'm headed to Jamaica for the presentation I told you about a few weeks ago to the Black Psychiatrists of America for their annual conference. We were supposed to be delivering with Keisha, Sonia, and I, but Sonia's mom is like, she's taken ill. So it's just going to be Keisha and I, but we're going to be delivering a presentation on parenting Black trans youth and safeguarding their mental health in today's climate. I'm super excited. Keisha and I have been working on it. So it's it's coming and November 8th through the 11th, we're going to be in Jamaica. That's amazing. I can't wait to hear about it. And please be safe. Yes, yes. We talked about it. I shall be safe. I will only wear my para on the actual, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think- Probably the significant thing that has also happened since the last time we spoke was I have formally joined Garden State Equality. Uh, I'll be working on their community building in Trenton. I get onboarded like next week, and I'm really excited to be working with them in a more intentional fashion. I've been kind of a like a mascot 
of course, data quality, you know, showing up with the different things that they've been doing, but I haven't really been doing a lot of actual on the ground work. I've, I've attended a couple of school board meetings, et cetera. I was made an offer that I accepted, and now I am uh, a member of Garden of State Equality. So I'm super excited about that. You Congratulations. That's so exciting. Oh, well, enough about me. What's up with you, Lizette? Well, I'm tired as always. It's been hectic out here, but I will say tomorrow I'm excited because every quarter we do uh, with the Southern Arizona Gender Alliance, we do a name change clinic and it's the, one of the oldest running name change clinic in the Southwest. Nice. And so it's really satisfying to help families and trans people get their documents um, in order so that they can go and get like a and petition for a legal name change. As you know, we were our family, Daniel was a plaintiff in a lawsuit on the birth certificate case because that we had a we still have a surgical mandate in order to update your birth certificate. But this name change clinic is kind of special because even though the lawsuit is still ongoing, we've had a couple families get their updated birth certificates with using the petition that we fill out for them. And so it's kind of exciting. And we're hoping that more families will get more trans youth will get the relief they deserve. So that's always exciting when we do name change clinic. And then Daniel and I had like a busy advocacy couple weeks, we did a plenary for Let's Get Better Together conference, which is a medical healthcare conference that happens every year here in Arizona. And so Daniel and I gave a talk about his journey and our journey into advocacy and what it means to show up as allies today in the climate that we're in. And then the following day, Daniel and I did a panel with um, Judy and Dennis Shepard and Greg uh, Parati, who was one of the uh, playwrights for the Laramie Project, which is about uh, what happened after the attack of Matthew Shepard. And so we did a panel with them and it was really incredible. And my, my childhood pediatrician, who was my sister's pediatrician and my other sister's pediatrician, and then Daniel's pediatrician was there. And he's just such an avid supporter of Daniel. And like he retired early on, but is like, I'm just so proud of Daniel and more providers need to show up and be allies. So it was really a beautiful night. And then Jose won a community award via the LGBTQ Alliance Fund, which is a local, a, like a local fund in Pima County that gives money out to grassroots LGBTQ programs and organizations. And so Jose won, won um, an allyship award and we were really excited. And I think Daniel just gets super proud of like seeing the community rally around him and rally around Jose. And then just all my crazy volunteering. I had a really beautiful conversation with a mom who's supporting her new trans son. And I feel like that's always so satisfying, helping people get resources they need, get the support that they need to ensure that their kids are safe and thriving. And so I don't know, that was wonderful. So those kinds of are like the things that I've been doing. That's awesome. I, I love hearing about Daniel's advocacy because it's somehow more impactful when it comes out of the actual members of the community, more so than, you know, we who are tangentially affiliated. And again, I think our testimony is still valuable, but I think when you're actually hearing from, from trans and gender nonconforming youth themselves, it just, it just hits differently. It just hits differently. It's so important to hear Daniel's voice. You know, like at the conference, there was a journalist who was like following us and, and, and had interviewed us. And I think seeing like a trans youth just say like, I'm just a, nor I'm just a kid. Like I'm a kid who's just doing kid things and I deserve to have access to A, B, and C. 
you're right. It hits different. And I think Daniel's like really moved into much like Hobbs. I mean, I got to hear their interview that they just recently did with HRC. I think that they just, they have a clear point of view and they know that they are deserving of their rights and they say it so eloquently. It's really beautiful to watch. It really is. It really is. But Lisa, we've got so much more to talk about today. So let's stop messing around and get to today's topics. Let's do it. Let's go. So I just saw a conversation with young Jock that really struck me about the way people perceive being transgender as an ideology. Now, in this interview, which we have a short clip of. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Young Jock in the streets morning. Take over, Miss Shanika. And shout it, shout it. Now this morning, yes, it appears that I... Uh, have been placed in the hot seat by the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, and first, I want to start off by saying I, I was asked a question on Vlad TV, right? Yeah. He asked me what did I think about Boosie for turning down 250K to perform for an LGBTQ audience. And I said what I said was basically, well, as a man, if he doesn't understand that concept or ideology or that lifestyle, and he has been transparent that he doesn't accept it, then it would be wrong for him to go and take their money if he don't really rock with that. So then the question was asked to me as a hypothetical, as you put it, Miss Shanika. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, I've been in that situation before, once upon a time with Miss B, okay? She had two shows in one night. I was a hype man. First show was all women. I was actually comfortable with that. Cool, it was women. The second show for that night, we pulled up, and it was an all-gay male performance. And I did not feel comfortable. And I told her I didn't feel comfortable. She said, come on, bro. Nobody know who you are. You're going to go in here and support me. I said, okay, cool. After I walked out of it, I said, I don't think there's something that I want to do when I do get on. I never spoke those words publicly, right? So it doesn't make it like I'm a hypocrite or anything. I just something I thought that I would never do. So they asked me, would I perform for $250,000 in front of an LGBTQ crowd? So let me clear this up. First and foremost, I have friends of that community in real life, right? Now, I have performed in front of a quote-unquote LGBTQ crowd, but it was women. It was women. So people are coming out saying, oh, we got receipts. You, It was women. Oh, something women. that I basically said in the full interview that I was comfortable with. So people are upset. So my apologies to the community on that behalf by, by not saying in front of a quote-unquote lesbian crowd, I don't have a problem with it. But I say LGBTQ because... I get condemned the minute I address you wrong. And it's here it is, I, I'm almost a half a century old, and we're just learning how to properly, quote unquote, address you with the these acronyms or these pronouns. So that was why, the, that's where the whole misunderstanding came from. Young Jock is being asked whether he supports homosexuality. And while he says that he doesn't have a problem with anyone doing whatever they want with each other, it's just not for him. And it bothers him. And it's okay for people who want to partake, but you can't force someone to accept something that they don't agree with. And that's the part right there that I think people don't really understand. It's like you having a problem with something that you don't accept and agree with is in it of itself a problem because it's not for you to agree or disagree with people simply have to let people be and having these positions where i don't have to agree with it is in fact what creates the animosity the hate the attacks that we have to suffer because of these stated opinions and i don't think people understand and appreciate how harmful their words are and their perspectives are 
I also think too, like I was listening to the anti-trans hate machine by Amara Jones for Translash. I was listening to a part where they had this woman, I forget her name, but she had been part of the ex-gay movement. And they told her very clearly, you have to make this, you have to communicate that this is a choice that you choose because then it's not protected under the 14th Amendment. How nefarious is that? And so young Jock doesn't even realize that his words were given to him by the right, were given to him by homophobic and transphobic people who don't want marginalized people to exist freely. And so he's just perpetuating those harms and that hate. And just like by saying that, oh, you can do whatever you want to do. It's a misinformed perspective. And I think we just have to start having conversations with our communities that is like, look, this isn't a choice. This is who someone is. Right. And LGBTQIA people exist across the board in all of our communities and all of our families. And we need to quit doing the work of the hateful white evangelical right that is trying to push their religious dogma and and uphold white supremacy on the rest of us. We just need to stop right, that. Right. And I think it, it starts with people understanding that they've been brainwashed, understanding that the words coming out of their mouths aren't their own. This concept of a transgender ideology, as if it's some sort of theoretical position that people hold, some intellectual perspective, as opposed to real life for actual people. No one's trying to make you believe that this is a thing. It's a thing. You simply right. have to accept that it's a thing. You don't right. have to be transgender yourself if you're not transgender. But if you are transgender, you're not trying to push the fact that you're transgender on somebody. You simply want to be acknowledged for being. I mean, it's so funny. I was at like a Mi Gente conference. Well, I was at the Mi I wasn't at like, I was at the Mi Gente National Conference. And there was a woman who was not part of community who came and sat in the LGBTQ forum. And she said, essentially, like, you need to educate your families and your community about what you're experiencing. And I was like, I think I think people have been doing that. I mean, people are sharing who they are. They're sharing it online. They are part. I mean, look, everybody had that family member who was queer, who showed up for us. It was a carnesada for you all. Maybe it was like, you know, the barbecue or wherever people were convening. We always had those queer family members that were not acknowledged. And we don't talk about that, but they existed in our families. And like we loved and we loved them, but the fact that we pretended that they were not their fullness of who they were, that's that's on us. That's yeah. so disrespectful. And it's on us as community members, as allies, as people who love and know LGBTQIA people. So when people continue to say like, I don't use Latine or Latine, I don't accept this in whatever communities we come from, it's just perpetuating the harms that impact us in other ways. Absolutely. This really leads into our next topic. There were 10 deaths of black and brown trans people in the month of October. London Price, Dominic Dupree, Lisa Love, London Star, Bianca Davenport, Anie Johnson, Sherilyn Marjorie, China Long, Luis Castro, and DJ Yoko were all killed last month in what should have been a celebration of LGBTQ History Month, but instead was the deadliest month for transgender people this year. I have no words other than sadness. It's just, I have no word. I wish it were different and I wish we could fix it and make the violence and the harm stop. Often I think about, you know, the ways in which we advocate for our children and it feels like it's not enough when you hear 
and read these names aloud. It's not enough. Yeah. Whenever I talk about it, I say we have to do more to protect transgender people. We have to do more to reduce the hateful rhetoric around transgender people. We have to do more to ensure that transgender people are seen, are heard, are affirmed, and are seen. That is our mission. Yeah. That is why we're doing this podcast, because people need to know that transgender people's lives matter. Absolutely. Point period, 100% emoji. Like it's no longer tenable for us to just state the names of lives lost. Like there has to be more deliberate action by allies who say they care. You know what's really frightening me right now? Tell me. The three transgender youth, their parents, and a doctor in Tennessee who have asked the Supreme Court to block that state's ban on transition-related health care for minors. Because if the court takes the case up, it could potentially set precedent for the balance of gender-affirming health care in states across the country. And with this court, we don't even know which way it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to trust that Chase Strangio and ACLU National know what they're doing in, in bringing forth this ask. And for months, like with any movement lawyer I'd spoken to, everyone was like, this is coming. I didn't think it was coming this fast. I forget that October, November, December is when the Supreme Court listens to these cases. So like it knocked the wind out of me when I saw it. And so it's terrifying and also necessary. We knew that these court cases were going to make their way to SCOTUS. I want to hope that Gorsuch will do the right thing like he did under Bostock. But you're right. It's terrifying. And we don't know. And it will impact our children. It's had my stomach in knots, if I'm quite honest. And I also want to stay hopeful that the lawyers bringing this case forward, because I know that they are experts in this, like will be able to argue and make these judges do the right thing. So the one thing that actually gives me hope in this moment is marriage equality, is the fact that the federal court split, which brought the case to the Supreme Court, was decided in favor of recognizing marriage equality. And I'm hopeful that the courts will be similarly disposed to recognize that what should happen is increased protections and not decreased protections, especially when you're talking about people who are similarly situated being treated differently. That is like basic discrimination that is under our constitution untenable and illegal. But again, there's a very conservative Supreme Court, and we can only hope that they do the right thing. So I'm, I'm going to go with you, Lizette. I'm going to hope hope against hope that this is going to be decided in our favor if they take it up at all. But I think it, it's, it's hard to avoid at this point. My mind was blown when I read the Bostock ruling. I was like, Gorsuch wrote what? And I later learned that Gorsuch had written other favorable rulings for transgender people that, I mean, obviously we are, we're not doing deep dives on these judges. Yeah. But when I read Bostock and the care with which they talked about Amy Stevens, right? Like they mentioned she's trans, he mentioned she's transgender once. And then she, her pronouns all the way through, like, that set a precedence. That yeah. simple thing set a precedence. And so I don't want to put all my baskets and like all my eggs in the Gorsuch basket. I'm just hoping that some of them will see that banning care is not the way to go. But then I think about Dobbs and what happened with the Dobbs ruling, and it just makes my stomach hurt. So I'm trying not to be fatalistic, if that means makes sense. It's terrifying. I could talk about this all day, but we've okay. got to get to our guest. Let's do this. 
With us today is transgender activist, advocate, and tireless accomplice to change, Gael Esposito. Arizona born and raised, community organizer, and nonprofit advocate, now improving community and civic health through philanthropy and volunteering, Gael Esposito is a partner with Creosote Partners, a progressive Arizona-based lobbying, government relations, and legislative advocacy firm based in Phoenix. Gael is a leader on education policy with a wealth of experience in advocacy, coalition building, and electoral campaigns. She strives to tackle each problem with patience and humor. Nothing's more important to Gael than being an effective voice for the causes that improve the life of her community and her constituency. Everyone, please welcome Gael Esposito to our show. Welcome to the show, Gael. I'm so excited you're here. And I say excited all the time, but I really mean it. I really am happy to see your face. I'm so excited to be here too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And it is always a joy to see your face. And Stephen, uh, a pleasure to to see yours as well. I know we haven't had this chance to meet in person yet. So we're going to jump right into it, Gail. With so many states across the country actively taking away rights from transgender people and their families, organizations such as Creosote Partners are critical to standing up for this community. Was this organization formed in response to this bite of legislation or in spite of it? So Creosote Partners was founded actually in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Uh, and it was started by my business partner, um, Marilyn Rodriguez, who really had an incredible vision for helping these community-centered organizations who were often going down to the Capitol um, to try and fight that good fight, but who didn't necessarily have anybody who had been steeped in the legislative process, who knew the, the history and dynamics of these various politicians, how to get in the door, when deadlines were going to be. You know, she had been working in the corporate lobbying world um, before that. And so she knew she had the skill set and the know-how to really help open those doors for um, the folks who were trying to do the good work for our people. I joined soon after she started uh, the company. It was only about six months later. And it, because it, it grew so fast, right? There, there was a clearly a lot of demand for this. Issues that we focus on have, have ebbed and flowed based on needs, but advocacy for LGBT issues, for criminal justice reform, for education, for housing and uh, economic justice have all in some way, shape or form been a part of that work since the start. I became connected with Creosote during our fight for inclusive sex ed and the removal of no promo homo in our state, which was around 2017, 2018. And it's just been a journey, I will say, you know, as the journey continues, I just want to know what are your concerns for the 2024 legislative session? And what do you think we can do more of to prepare and combat the continued harms of anti-trans legislation? I'm glad you mentioned that no promo homo fight because it's important to reflect on on just how far things have changed, you know, that they, how far things have gone since that point when really we saw a bipartisan consensus and understanding of like this harmful and, and bigoted language that we had codified in state statute uh, 30 years before and the need to remove it to where we are 
now with, you know, some of those same figures actively supporting new bigoted legislation that we are we are codifying because of the the political pressures from the the right and within their own party. It's really fascinating to see how how quickly that all moved. And, you know, it it's hard to you know, fascinating isn't the right word. I, that's me trying to be as dispassionate about it as I can be. And as I reflect on on what caused that shift and what we can do now, I really think so much of it is also some of the hardest work, which is sharing our stories, you know, getting personal, being a little bit vulnerable with our, not just our struggles, because there's a lot of focus on that, but like our joys, right? And, and that's a hard thing to oftentimes bring up to, to hostile people, right? You don't, you don't want to let them, let, let them know what, you know, the things that are that actually make you happy. But, you know, I think that humanity and that narrative is what is shifting public opinion uh, in our way. It's what, you know, builds, you know, the coalition and community, that we need to to sustain that fight. And it is what's going to to inevitably allow us to win is developing those interpersonal connections. Uh, because right now, for trans people, the, our biggest problem is that a lot of folks out there just think they don't know somebody who is trans. And it is strange and different to them, and, and they don't really get it. And interacting with a, a trans person gets them to that point, maybe not of understanding, but of respect. I think that's going to be the biggest thing is just building that community, sharing our joy, and then sharing those stories as effectively, as loudly as possible. I feel like you may have seen our questions because that answer literally goes into the next one that I wanted to ask you. As a transgender woman yourself, why is it so important to have organizations like Creosote Partners engaged in lobbying and in the legislative efforts that you undertake? I like this question because I, it gives me a, a chance to talk about something that I, I don't often get to. So this last legislative session was was really my first one since publicly being out and transitioning. I, I had come out privately to a few friends and it, and it started that long process before, but you know this, this session truly was the first. Something that I tried to do this legislative session was sometimes take a backseat to the community voices that were, you know, oftentimes driving long distances, as Lizette knows very well, uh, to come up and testify, you know, to meet with their legislators. I'm down there all the time, right? They they see me. So I realized quickly that one of the most important things I could do was allow them to hear from other members of the community while I was still there to support those members. And then they heard from me on all those other issues I talked about. You know, I, I testified on housing. I met, you know, on economic justice and environmental bills and, you know, uh, uh, all the different things. To me, I, you know, and I did testify on anti-trans bills. I, the, the first the first bill I testified, you know, the first bill that really got a hearing this session was a pronoun policing bill uh, from John Kavanaugh. And I used that opportunity to share my story of, of coming out and um, what that was like for me. But beyond that, I, I really wanted to just like kind of make it as boring as possible for them to see me around, right? Like it's always exciting because, you know, I'm I'm pretty cool and fun. But like just, you know, a a, a very like average experience that they would have and then just continue to help those new folks feel supported, feel safe, feel a sense of understanding with the process and hope that 
that in some small ways helped to, to chip away. I like to remind people that Arizona is a test state. So when people are horrified by like Florida and Texas, I'm like, we did it first, but we get forgotten because we have small, like a smaller population of people, right? I just want to know, like, what are you doing to take care of yourself? What has it been like? Because it really is experiential. What has it been like to be working in the system and outside of that system, knowing that we're seeing like things that we've fought and won, like spread to other states and pass? Like, are you feeling nervous about that? Yeah, I, I think a lot about the slim margins of votes that protect trans folks and particularly trans youth right now uh, here in Arizona. I think a lot about how already we have seen the signs that particularly the 2024 uh, presidential primaries will be, you know, Republican presidential primaries will be centered around uh, attacks on trans people. And I think you are right. We will see an escalation in 2024. I don't know how much longer they'll sustain it after that, right? There, There's always a new shiny object for them to, you know, set up a straw man to, to target on. But as far as what I do to take care of myself and, you know, how I think about these issues spreading and what we can do is, A, I, I set intentional time aside to just with my people and you know uh sit with them and sit in that and you know experience that happiness and joy with without dwelling on what i know and what we all know is is out there because i think acknowledging that we can only control the the few things we can control we can only be there you know uh we can fight the fight when we can right and do what we can and the rest of it is just being there to support one another is key to me and i, I you know a, a big part of it for me has been finding new queer spaces to to help build um to be a part of to engage within both for fun and and you know for work you know, i'm very proud to have joined the board of, of lookout which is a queer uh news organization um nonprofit news organization really the only one in the country uh certainly the only one in the state focused solely on reporting on uh lgbt issues and news Right, like that kind of storytelling, that kind of connection, that that building that uh, awareness of one another and shared sense of identity, I think is is really the the thing that you know helps restore me for the times when we have to just be down there fighting with people who who you know aren't going to change their minds anytime soon um, and have all the incentive in the world not to, uh, even if they they might want to. You know, before this legislative session, I, I I think I felt a lot of unease about walking into that environment, you know, and people who had seen me for a decade one way, who aren't necessarily good at, at making those uh, adjustments and who, you know, by and large, a lot of them are, you know, transphobic uh, actively, that what that was going to be like for me. Um, and I think an important thing that I realized uh, is that a lot of the most bigoted voices down there are at their core cowards. They uh, wouldn't have the guts to say anything to to my face. Um, you know, anything they would say, they'd couch in commentary about our community at large and then, you know, 
try to make individual distinctions so that they could absolve themselves and try not to feel like bigots. Uh, and that, you know, all those old practices that they do, recognizing that hatred is based in fear and that fear, you know, would drive them to just uh, uh, avoid that kind of confrontation with me, uh, made me realize like, okay, I'm like, I can do this, right? Like I can be there and I can be there for my people and I can stand up for myself if, you know, uh, the need arises and it would arise. Um, and having built that community outside of it, like I knew I I could, you know, expend my energy there and have the place to recharge. Thank you for sharing that. There is so much vulnerability in coming out, being out, and then to be a public person, it, it takes a lot and it can be draining. So so thank you for all the work that you're doing. We've seen that a lot of the laws being passed in these states are the result of several well-funded organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom from good old Scottsdale, Arizona, which have been engaged in these efforts to change the laws and they've been successful. How do you see your efforts working as a counter to some of what organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom are doing? You know, I've had a lot of opportunities to take on ADF, both at the legislature and outside of it. Uh, you know, one of my, my favorite things we did was a, a communications campaign at the time called Scottsdale Discriminates, where, you know, uh, we tried to use some humor um, to bring attention to uh, the uh, ADF being headquartered there. You know, and had like a, a golfer talking about how proud he was that that Scottsdale allowed such discrimination to flourish in, in his favorite vacation destination, things like that. Um, and, and it was very uh, effective. And, you know, I like to think that public awareness and pressure helped to get Scottsdale um, to move to pass their own non-discrimination ordinances, um, you know, and that's always satisfying to know <laughs> that that ordinance exists in uh, the ADF's backyard. I, I think that they have been at this a long time. They have been sowing these seeds for a while. They are bearing fruit now, but they've always kind of had this cycle where they get their quick moment in the sun. And then as soon as people notice what they are doing. They don't like it because they, their position turns out of hate and bigotry is not something that people really want to be associated with. And that awareness, and it contains the the, the seeds of their own like uh, uh, destruction there ideologically. And I think, you know, as we see the new speaker of the house, like a, a former ADF lawyer and spokesperson, right? Like you're seeing a lot of attention on, on who they are and what they do. And a lot of his hostile ideology, hateful uh, ideology being elevated to a, a level of public awareness that I don't think, you know, we've, we've really seen um, before. And so I think, you know, they are overextending themselves in their hateful attacks on, on trans people and particularly focusing on, on trans youth. Like there's just a point where people recognize it for the bullying it is. You're seeing this uh, uh, awareness of their, their broader goals of just criminalizing queer people overall. I think, you know, we are already going to start, they are at the peak of where they will be and we will start to see that decline here coming soon. And so for me, it's all about building the capacity, the organization, the community to be prepared to help, you know, amplify awareness of what's happening, to build that solidarity and uh, uh, that connection with 
are people to the broader public who may think they don't, you know, know uh, a queer person like that, and to use that connection to build that like popular support to ensure our rights are protected uh, and that we are treated just like everybody else. I mean, it always matters so much to Daniel to see you in the room, like you and Marilyn and all of our allies whenever he's had to testify. And when when we're done recording, I'm going to send you something about Paul Cruz. But I think it's been great to see also really great investigative journalism coming out, talking about how much they've paid people like Paul Cruz and other quote unquote experts to really push misinformation at the legislative level. What do you want to tell trans youth who have been actively advocating against anti-trans or anti-LGBTQ legislation for the last six years? What do you want to tell those kids who are listening? First of all, you almost made me cry there with that comment about Daniel. <laughs> love, I love you and your family and Daniel so much. Um, and, you know, I feel very much the same way. I'm always so inspired and awed by that work that you have done to have the strength for him to advocate for himself and to build that connection, you know, and things like trans prom, which just uh, all so, so wonderful. Sorry. I think what I would say to them is first and foremost, you know, I'm sorry you have to spend your teenage years doing this. You know, I I, I want to acknowledge that like they shouldn't have to. I got involved when I was a teenager, but I got involved because I was a big old nerd. Uh, and that's the reason they should, <laughs> should you know, be involved in, in, in political advocacy, not just to have to, you know, fight for their humanity. But I want them to know they're winning and it's it's hard to see it now uh, and it's hard to, to feel it now when we're stuck constantly in, in these short term, immediate, necessary fights. But there's a reason I struggled to come out until my 30s. And, you know, I look back to when I was a teenager and it was in I was first getting involved, as I mentioned, being a nerd. And it was at that time, you know, we were seeing all these same attacks, all these same comments, all the same hateful slurs used simply to talk about gay and lesbian people and their fight for marriage equality and, and their fight for basic non-discrimination protections. I look back on those fights now and see the acceptance that we like that they have won uh, in the broader public. I see how those pieces are there right now for trans people in the future. And I see how their existence, their joy, their willingness to, to be who they are right now in this moment as, you know, as young people is the thing that's going to make that world safer in five, 10 years. We will continue to see more and more young people who feel comfortable expressing themselves um, without fear and without shame in a way that I struggled with because that did not exist. I didn't see any positive trans representation. I didn't know a trans person until I was in my mid twenties and I grew up and lived in cities my whole life. And I, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that visibility is also what frightens our opponents so much because they know that that uh, is what is going to build broader acceptance within the public. And so they, I want them to know 
that just by being there, they, as you said, right? Like I feel it in the, in the room when Daniel's testifying, Daniel sees it um, when he sees me and Marilyn there in that is just the same thing on a big, that feeling is just there on a bigger scale for every other trans kid who may not feel that right now they can come out. Steven, I want to kiki real fast. I'll take a minute, <laughs> but I have to tell you real fast. I promise when we stopped the entire medical ban, I mean, it became a surgical ban, but when that day that we were all in that court, in that legislative room, like there was literally like five kids went and testified. All the parents were there with them. We had Gael there. I, I cried more than once. Daniel pretended to be asleep for 45 minutes because Paul Cruz went on like a 45 minute transphobic rant. I actually walked out of the room because I was like, they're going to pass this medical ban and I cannot face my child. I walked out of the room and all of a sudden I heard cheers and screaming and like there was so much joy because we stopped it and like then I just like sobbed with joy and it was it was like I've never it's unnatural to be in those spaces it's un it's an unnatural thing to debate your right to access medical care and the relief that everyone felt in that moment like spread through the room. Even people that were not there to discuss this medical ban were pissed that, that, you know, some of the senators were saying really awful things. Like you could hear it in the crowd being like, ah, you know? And so it was just like this, like moment of like deep relief that we could have like political impact. Cause often it feels like such a helpless situation. And so I mean, I just, I, I love you for always being in that room, even when we're not there. Okay, I'll be done. I'm done kicking. Thank you, Lisa. I'm going to try not to cry so I can answer the other questions. <laughs> That's actually a very good segue, Lisette. I'm not even mad at you for that one, because you and I are always talking about intersectionality. We're talking about collective effort and the importance of tethering our boats together. So Gael, my question to you is, how do you work in those intersectional spaces to combine the efforts of disparate and marginalized communities together for the types of effect you've actually been able to achieve? Thank you. I, I appreciate that question because I feel I feel like that intersectionality, that connection is is central to our, our purpose and our work, right? We we want to be in many ways the the bridge for all of our various clients who come at this work from different communities from different angles you know whether it's activate activating engaging on behalf of immigrant communities whether it's doing that on behalf of black and brown communities of people act, uh, advocating uh, for changes to criminal justice and policing, change of discipline uh, in our schools to uh, environmental justice and ensuring that our, you know, tax policies uh, even are ones that, that favor working families, right? It is helping them build connections to one another, build an understanding of the work they are doing, have lanes of communication so that folks can understand each other's priorities um, and where we may need help and support on what to prioritize. I believe 
that communication piece, that connection piece that drives it, right? And helping folks to know who they need to talk to and who is doing what and when they are doing it. So no one's reinventing the wheel, no one's stepping on toes, nobody uh, is feeling like they are being left out. Builds a broader sense of movement that helps us to advance a shared cause here. And I think that's why, you know, we were able to stop that uh, full medical ban because we had this base of like broad awareness and connection that we were able to to quickly unify a, a, a whole block of opposition from folks who, who at that point had not heard about any of this, right? Like this was, we were, we were once again, the guinea pig of a, a fresh attack. It was something where we were able to, you know, build that human connection with folks. And I think our, our biggest problem right now is just the, the natural churn of, of political offices. So many new people, so many people already steeped in, you know, uh, a further right ideology that makes it harder to chip away uh, uh, at that, um, you know, as it reaches this national fervor um, in, in, you know, far right media like bubbles. But early on, it was having that that connection and that solidarity among groups to like help have each other's back and like provide the resources and provide, you know, um, the stability. And for me, right, like it's when I can't be in that room, right, when I am worn out, when I need to like go take a breather from hearing hateful things being said and my humanity being debated, that I know I have people within Creoso or elsewhere who go and take my seat, right? And who are there to also be there. And it is that stepping up when someone needs to step back, right? Like understanding when somebody else's voice needs to be uh, lifted up um, and helping our people understand that their fights are connected and that these are the people that are doing that work and you know, uh, uh, they are there for you too. So that actually leads me to another question. You've actually spoken to the Senate Education Committee. You've testified against some of the bills being proposed by the Arizona legislature, SB 1001, for example. Mm -hmm. What is it like to have to explain to lawmakers that trans people actually exist and that they shouldn't arbitrarily have their rights eliminated in the state? Yeah, I, I know I alluded to SB 1001 earlier is like that was that was the first bill that I testified on at the Capitol since being out publicly. Right. And I I used that opportunity to share my story. And, and I think that is what really ends up helping to to move people and to 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 build that. And it it never gets easier. Right like to go up in front of people who are using their power to not only bully people like you, but to bully the people like you who are at their most vulnerable point, right? And I wanted to use that opportunity, as I said, to, to tell my coming out story and why my journey took me as long as it did and how I felt in doing it, right? Um, and to be vulnerable about like the fear I experienced of, of rejection from my loved ones, from my peers. And right, 
the how I knew I still had a, a sense of security, it, despite all that, right? I am one of two millennials that owns my own home. I so I knew I wasn't I wasn't gonna I wasn't housing insecure as a, a young person might be, you know, at, at risk of being tossed out. I was sure that my coworkers would support me uh, because we had already been on the front lines, uh, you know, fighting these bills, right? So I knew I would have a job and a, a source of income. But one thing I, I you know, that was hard. I, I'm married, right? And at that time, finding a way to talk to my wife about that, knowing how much she loved me and knowing that in my heart, I knew we would be okay was still terrifying. And I think about all of that, all of that security I had built and how yet the shame that society had instilled in me so long, the habits I had built up made it so hard to, to get past that. Even even when I I was certain that like I would be loved and accepted, uh, because there's you know you always feel in the back of your mind there's a chance that you won't because that's what people at the ADF and what these legislators want you to believe is that you won't be accepted and and quite honestly beyond SB one thousand one that the year before um, at the beginning of session. Uh, there was a bill that in its original form, another bill we were able to, to vastly amend, was a bill that would have required the forced outing of students. And I remember this bill vividly because I had to have a back and forth with two very far right legislators in my testimony there. This is before I had come out to anyone. I had to have a back and forth with two far right legislators about what coming out is and why someone would be nervous about it for that first time. Well, one of them, I think, was sincere in his question. The other one was definitely not. Um, but like that experience, right? I I went home. I cried for three hours. I came out to my wife later that week, right? Because it was also important for me that at that point, I, I knew what I needed to do. Um, I had been thinking about it for a long time. But I also understood in that moment that by letting that shame control me by letting that fear that like that mean voice in my head when I was also creating and fostering an environment where these people who hated me and wanted that to win were getting what they wanted and I wanted to be happy <laughs> and not make myself small so they could feel big. And so it never gets easier to, to do it. But I always remember that experience and remember that I will not be small so that these petty people can feel bigger. Oh, my God. Listening to you, you took me back to an interview that you did on Politics Unplugged. And I was struck by a question you were asked about, you know, how you process bigotry and the hateful rhetoric that you're exposed to daily. And you talked about the support you received from your wife. I was getting goosebumps just now listening to you. Can, can you talk about the absolute importance of having that familial support for trans people when they're coming out? Yeah, I have been very blessed in that. Consciously or unconsciously, I I built myself a, a community that has been so warm and loving and has allowed me to to thrive, you know, and I know not everyone gets that. And I think about 
how that is the world I want to build, right? Where where people like that's the default, right? It's easy and people love you and they like, you know, they go, oh great, you know, what well, what's for dinner? <laughs> and you know, I like that casualness is something I hope for. And and just that celebration and joy, you know, I I'm gonna get emotional again. One of the best days of my life was when my wife and my friends, you know, I I had planned a, a surprise party for me. I this was back in, in February. I finally had got my legal name change done at the beginning of the year. And so in the middle of February, they they threw me a Guy Valentine's Day party, they called it. They surprised me with a, a big like party of hundred people or something absurd, uh, that they surprised me with of of just to to celebrate me being me. And I had people like of all different politics who were there and, you know, from all different parts of my life who were there and feeling that love is something on the hard days that I can go back to. And so I just hope everybody gets the chance to experience that from the ones they love. And if they don't get that from the people who are their blood, that they are able to build and have built a a community that will, will take that place. But I also want to say it was still, you know, even in my 30s, it was terrifying to come out to my parents. <laughs> the immediacy, I will always remember the immediacy with which my mother, who I was frankly, like most worried of how she might react, you know, she gave birth to me. She's the, she did all the hard work. <laughs> like the immediacy with which she embraced me was another thing that like I hold on to. So I hope, I hope people get that. I'm still so sad that I missed Valentine's Day. <laughs> it was a good party. Let's I know it, the it photos were so good. I get so sad. I'm like, oh, um, we're all about active allyship here. And so what are like three practical things allies can do to help in 2024? Check in on your friends and your family, right? Give them the the space for that joy, right? That's the easiest thing, but the most important, right? Like there are, once again, a lot of it's out, outside of even our allies control, like they, but that space is, is so key. Share those stories, help make people aware when you see them come up and when your friends ask you to. That's, I think, another uh, item that an ally can, uh, it, another action item an ally can take. And if you want to take the time to contact a legislator, if you want to take the time to to write that email and make that call, it helps. And I know it feels like it doesn't. And I know it's exhausting. And I know a lot of times they, they don't listen and they don't hear. But like showing that momentum, showing that community, showing that like people are paying attention and they're not going to just be able to get away with this like they think they are every single time. Um, because we're a small community and that makes us easy to bully in their eyes. Show them that other people are paying attention and that you have loved ones uh, who will be hurt by this, I think is uh, a- another key piece. There. So those three things, create the space, share the stories, and then speak out when you can. Gael, thank you so much. This was an amazing interview for our 25th episode. We thank you so much for the time you shared with us today and for all that you do for the Arizona community, for our transgender community, and for all marginalized communities. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. Thank you. Love you.
Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisa, who are we talking about today? One of my all-time favorites. Our ally of the week is Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton went on record to criticize Tennessee's anti-trans bills. While the country singer has been pretty consistent in avoiding political conversations, the recent transphobic legislation in Tennessee caused her to speak out. Commenting on the state's anti-trans laws, the singer said, I just want everybody to be treated good. Parton has been a champion for the LGBTQIA community throughout her career, regularly using her platform to show them support and urge her more conservative fans to open their hearts. Parton talked about the trans, the gays, the lesbians, the drunks, and the drug addicts she had in her family, and how she tries not to judge anyone, which is a model we should all follow. Minus the thes in front of all the identifiers. <laughs> and so this is why Dolly Parton is our ally of the week. Congratulations to Dolly Parton. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is Representative Mike Johnson. After weeks of tumult in the House, the Republicans elected Representative Mike Johnson to take up the Speaker's gavel after the disgraceful removal of Kevin McCarthy. For those of you who do not know, Mike Johnson is an avowed homophobe, transphobe, and enemy of LGBTQ plus people, having made his bones as an attorney for Alliance Defending Freedom an organization that has been labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh gosh, he's literally evil. He has called same-sex marriage a dark harbinger of chaos and suggested that it would lead people wetting their pets. His views are completely out of touch with reality and could have dangerous consequences for LGBTQIA people in this country. And that's why Mike Johnson is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Gael Esposito, for joining us today. And of course, I'd like to thank my rocking ass co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for riding with me. Steven, you know I'm your ride or die. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Folks, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to to stay up to date with everything going on here Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to the Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.